1: The Naked Scientists
2: Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now, coming up this week, we've uh, heard of solar cells, but now scientists have made the world's smallest examples of them. They're solar-powered nanowires. They're absolutely tiny. They're just 200 times thinner than a human hair, so absolutely microscopic. How do they work? Well, we'll be finding out shortly. Also, we'll be hearing how researchers have used a chemically have used a chemical which is normally found in the brain to produce a glue that's so sticky that it'll even bind to Teflon, so what can we do with it? And also, how scientists have discovered how the human body combats viruses, and in particular, Hepatitis C. That's all on the way.
3: Also this week, we are delving into particle physics, including paying a visit to the Diamond Synchrotron in Oxford. That's the most expensive diamond I think we'll ever get near too and this is helping scientists to solve the mystery of the dead sea scrolls those ancient parchments that go back thousands of years but are actually too delicate to even unroll
0: we can take lots and lots of pictures at different angles of a piece of parchment and we can then reconstruct on a computer what the original object was and that's where we've begun to realize that we can read objects which we really would not be able to unroll
3: Plus, we're going to be joined by physicist Ben Alanak and Christina Lazzaroni to find out what's inside an atom and how the Large Hadron Collider at CERN is going to help us find out.
2: And sticking with the hard stuff, in this week's Question of the Week, we're also su- uh, solving this cooking-related conundrum.
0: Why is it that chocolate chips in cookies melt if you touch them, but they survive the baking process?
2: Absolutely intriguing, and the answer is definitely going to surprise you. It's coming up later in the programme.
3: And also we'll be eating all the chocolate biscuits. So if you have a science question for us about particle physics, what makes up the universe, what it's all about, or if you just want to say hello, do get in touch. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com
1: The Naked Scientist podcast powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider on the web at ukfast.net
2: And we mentioned this very interesting study uh, looking at the world's smallest solar cells and now scientists have really taken it to another dimension quite literally because Charles Lieber and his colleagues there in Harvard University over in the US have made solar powered nanowires so they've taken all of the ingredients of a normal flat solar cell and found a way of rolling them up to make the equivalent of a tiny cable and the way it works is that the inside of this tiny cable which is just 300 nanometers across that's 200 times thinner than a human hair consists of silicon which is the stuff you find in computer chips to which someone has added a small amount of boron and boron has got lots of electrons to give away and they've coated around the boron a layer of pure silicon via depositing the silicon in this clever vapor deposition process and then the outside of the wire has another layer of silicon but this one's got some phosphorus mixed with which likes to soak up electrons. And the way it works, when uh, some light in the form of a a photon of energy comes in, it lands on the inside part of the wire where the boron is, knocks some electrons off the boron. They go into the outer layer of the wire where the phosphorus is, and they can't get back because of this uh, intermediate insulating layer of silicon. So they flow around the circuit, do some work, and then come back to where they started. And although they're not very efficient at the moment, they're just 3% efficient, and that's a lot less than the best solar cells we have at the moment, which can be up to 30% efficient. The team are hoping they'll be able to get them up to about 15% before too long. So what do you reckon you could do with these? Well, they're not terribly powerful. They make between 50 and 200 pico watts. In other words, <laughs> that's, that's not going to fire
3: a, your telly, uh, is no, it? No,
2: it's less than a billionth of a watt per wire. But what they have shown is you can connect them together, either in series, so you can add up the voltage from each one, or in parallel, so you can multiply the current from each one, and this increases the output. Or, if you shine brighter light on them, and they've done this with using light, which is about eight times brighter than sunlight, then you can power things. And they managed to power a nano-powered pH detector, in other words, something that can register how acid or alkaline something is using this. And so, as Charles Lieber says, this enables us to study a fundamentally different geometry for photovoltaic cells. We're no longer constrained and confined to the old way of doing it. You can start to make them in a new shape and therefore build things at a very, very small level, which light can power without having to have macro things to power it. That
3: sounds absolutely genius. Uh, Completely on the other end of the scale almost uh, mussels. Mussels live in the sea I like eating them and as well as making a tasty meal mussels have actually provided the inspiration for a new generation of polymers. Mussels can attach to virtually any surface including things like Teflon which is uh, allegedly completely non-stick and they do this by producing molecules called amino acids that form strong bonds with the surface that the muscle sitting on and one of these amino acids is dopamine and that's a chemical that's usually used to send signals within our brains and brains of other animals it's
2: the brain's pleasure chemical isn't it
3: exactly but muscles use it as a sticky chemical Because they don't have brains, I guess they've got to do something with it. Anyway, writing in this week's edition of the journal Science, um, researchers led by Philip Messersmith have have taken a tip from these clever bivalves and they use dopamine to form thin films on surfaces like metals, glass and ceramics. And the technique simply involves you dip your surface in a solution of dopamine at the same acidity level as seawater and it spontaneously forms a thin polymer layer after a couple of hours. And then you can use this film to attach other chemicals... and and other molecules onto the your original surface. So
2: what sorts of things are they sticking to and what can they stick with?
3: Well you can actually um, use this for metal plating you can stick metals onto plastic so for example you could build up a a flexible plastic metal plated thing so you could use that for flexible electrical components Um, or you can develop paints that don't pick up dirt because they're they're non-stick and also you can actually attract biological molecules with this dopamine coating so you could actually make medical implants that maybe kill bacteria or, uh, or release chemicals Chemicals.
2: It sounds really interesting because the concept of being able to electroplate a uh, plastic and just make electrically conductive plastic in itself is amazing. Because yeah. you can think of all of the things you could make. At the moment, you have to use very complicated to work with materials to make conducting surfaces electric and microchips trousers, and things. All sorts of well, things. Well, yeah, PVC, well, conducting PVC, that, that would be good. I
3: electric trousers here. Yeah.
2: <sighs> Well, anyway, sticking with the very small, uh, scientists have actually uncovered a very exciting mechanism by which the body spits out and gets rid of viruses. Now, uh, the group of researchers in particular, they're led by Michael David, he's at UCSD over in the States, have been looking at hepatitis C. Now, hepatitis C is a major problem. It affects about 1% of the population of the Western world, but it can be as high as 10% of the population in some countries. And why it's a problem is it's a blood-borne virus. So needle sharing, blood transfusions, if you have needle stick injuries and and ear piercings even can spread it. Uh, Once you've got it, about 80% of the time, it becomes chronic. That is, you can have it for a very long time. And in the course of having this chronic infection, it continuously injures the liver and can cause cirrhosis. can lead
3: to cancer as well. It
2: can cause cancer in about 5% of people who have it. And Anita Roddick famously caught it from a blood transfusion. And Pamela Anderson has also said to have had this and she reckons she caught it from a tattoo needle. So it it can be caught, it is common, it is out there. We know from medicine now that about half of people who have it, if they're given one of the body's own signalling hormones called interferon in high doses, in six months you can cure about 50% of people, they'll clear the virus. But no one has a clue how it works. And so this research group decided to try and and solve the puzzle. And they wondered whether it could be down to a a thing that's recently been discovered, which is a phenomenon called microRNAs. Now, inside each of our cells is obviously the DNA, which has got our genes written into it. But also in the cells is a small population of nucleic acids called microRNAs, And these are very short sequences of genetic material. And unlike DNA, which is two chains stuck together... These are just one single chain and what they do is cruise around inside the cell and if they come across another message, a genetic message, which is the mirror image of theirs, they can lock onto it and inactivate it. So what the researchers wondered was whether interferon switches on some of these micro-RNAs that then are complementary or inactivate hepatitis C. And so they? well that 's what they did. They got some cells in the dish, put a lot of interferon onto the cells, and then looked which of their micro RNAs were turned on and They found about thirty microRNAs that had very high levels after they did this and then, when they compared the sequences the genetic sequence of those microRNAs with the genetic sequence of hepatitis C, eight of them were a, an exact match so this suggests that what 's happening in cells that have been uh, infected with hepatitis c in a person when you give them interferon it pushes up the levels of these things in their body and this turns down the level of hepatitis c and to prove that they infected some cells with hepatitis c in a dish they then added synthetic versions of these microRNAs, and they were able to reduce the level of hep c by 70 percent in the dish and so this gives us a whole new bunch of targets to try and aim at to try and treat hepatitis c in future so not only have they solved how interferon works which we never knew before may also help us solve a major problem that causes liver disease.
3: That's really interesting because that's just starting to come through in clinical trials. Actually, this kind of RNA-type treatments is still very early stage, but potentially that kind of thing is really exciting, potentially treatments for humans. Anyway, it's, it's become traditional that Dr Chris nips to the little boy's room five minutes before every show all the time. No comment. Um, It's true. But scientists in Belgium have found a gene that actually may be partly responsible for his urge to go and spend a penny. Um, Normally, when our bladder gets full, then this sends signals to the muscles around it, telling them to contract, uh, meaning that you have to go to the toilet. Um, Now, Bernd Nilius and his team have found out that a gene called TRPV4 is faulty in mice. uh, And when it's faulty, they become incontinent. And this means that they no, they no longer have this level of control over their bladder muscles, and so they just kind of go all the time. And the researchers looked at bladders taken from mice with a faulty gene and found that they sent sort of smaller chemical signals that tell the muscles to contract compared with the bladder, uh, bladders from mice with an intact version of the gene. So kind of they're, they're not sending the signal that the bladder's full, and instead you've just got it leaking all the time. So
2: is this relevant to humans who have incontinence problems?
3: Well, they think it is. Now, a TLPV4 uh, gene, it makes a protein that sits in the wall of cells that line the bladder and sends signals to the bladder that tells the muscles to contract. And the researchers think that this has a really important role in translating these signals uh, that allow a controlled trip to the loo and although these are just experiments in mice there's the possibility that in humans it could be a good target for people who maybe have incontinence problems so potentially for, for drugs or, or that kind of therapy in the future. Well, let's
2: hope so because it's pretty miserable if you, if you do suffer with that so exactly. let's hope that they do make some progress in that direction Now to finish off this week um, I would make some joke about wetness and marine environments but it seems a bit tasteless but researchers have actually made a major breakthrough in solving a big mystery of the sea, which is coral spawning.
3: Oh yeah, they and all do it at once.
2: That's right. If you if you watch David Attenborough, you'll have seen this phenomenon where on one or two days of a year, every single coral in a whole reef will decide... This is the time to spawn. Like
3: a mass orgy of coral. And
2: they also wait until it's a full moon. Now, how do they know that it's time to do this, and how do they know that it's a full moon? And that was the question that occurred to a bunch of scientists at the University of Queensland, and Oren Levy is the first author on a paper in this week's Science. And they went out to the reef, collected some samples of just reef-building coral. It's called Acropora millipora. And they decided to use the genes that make body clocks in humans and flies and worms, and use that gene to see if coral had its own version of that gene. So they looked for the human and worm and fly equivalent in coral and they found it. It's a gene called Cry1 and they found another one called Cry2 and that's short for cryptochromes. And cryptochromes are genes that make proteins that can detect light. They detect blue-green light. And so to see if this was relevant, they went out to the reef and they looked at corals when there was a full moon and when there was no moon and they found that these genes were following the moon cycle and particularly Cry2 the second of the two genes, was very, very high levels when there was a full moon, but not when there was no moon. And to check that they were on the right lines, they grew some of the coral in the lab and they uh, turned the light on for 12 hours, turned it off for 12 hours, on for 12 hours, off for 12 hours, did that for a long time and looked at these gene levels and they definitely came up when the light was on and they went down when the light was off and then they kept the coral in the dark for a while, and the genes went away. So it looks like this is part of the way in which the coral detects that it's light, that it's a moonlit night, and Cry 2, second of the two genes, seems to be linked to how the coral knows what the time is, and therefore it's potentially time to spawn. There's a lot more to find out yet, which is how they all signal that all of them have got to do it together. But at the same time, very exciting, because it's the first sort of insight into how coral has this clock.
3: Amazing. Everything from corals to weed to nanotubes on The Naked Scientists. Um, Later on, we're going to be talking about particle physics, all things delving into the nature of matter. If you have any questions for us, email us chris at thenakedscientists.com.
2: Thank you, Kat. Now, it's quite unlikely you're going to get the chance to conduct your own experiments with the Large Hadron Collider, which is what we're going to be talking about this week. Um, In fact, with any particle accelerator at all, because they're quite hard to come by and quite expensive. But as long as you've got an old-style TV or a computer monitor, and we don't mean the flat-screen expensive LCD ones, then you're in business. Because Ben and Dave have come up with a particle physics experiment that you can do in your living room.
4: Hello, welcome to this week's Kitchen Science. Now, I never thought I'd be saying this, but today I'm going to do a particle physics experiment. This is really exciting. I've got Dave Ansell with me, of course. Hi there. And this week, to help me out with my particle physics experiment, I have three girls from the 23rd Cambridge Brownies.
5: Hi. Hi.
4: And what are your names?
5: Ella S. Ella T. Poppy.
4: Now, do you know anything about particle physics? Have you ever heard of it? No. Have you any idea what it might be about? No. No. So Dave, clearly this is going to go over their heads, or is it something that they can try out It 's something really simple to do,
6: although I wouldn 't suggest it doing it on a TV which you like at all. It may damage it.
4: so we 've got my old monitor here today because i don 't really care if it does get broken, i 'm planning on recycling it soon anyway. So what is it that we 're going to do with a computer monitor we 're going to do two things. One
6: of them is just turn it upside down and see if that has any effect on it. And the second one is take a magnet and
4: put it near it and see what that does to the picture. OK, girls, now what do you think will happen if you turn a TV or a computer monitor upside down?
5: It will go blurry and the picture will be upside down. Like, if you watch a TV closely, there's sort of, like, green bits and red bits to make up the thing. I think it might go a bit like that. The picture will just stay as it is or it will go all fuzzy.
4: And the other thing Dave said that we're going to do is we're going to put a magnet near it. Now, do you think a magnet would affect a TV?
5: I think the screen will go fuzzy again.
4: Okay, I have another blurred screen, and what do you think will happen?
5: I think it'll go all weird.
4: Well, we've already said that we shouldn't do this with a TV that you're attached to, or one that you rely on. So, Dave, if people want to take the risk, can they do this at home? There's no particular
6: reason not to. You'll need one of the old-fashioned cathode ray tube TVs. These are the long, deep ones, not the modern flat screens, like a plasma or an LCD. So, old-fashioned TV, and it should be fine.
4: So if you do have an old CRT-style TV at home that you don't really care about too much, give this a try. Turn it upside down while it's on, see what happens, or wave a magnet at the screen and let us know if anything interesting happens. We'll catch up with you later on in the show to let you know what happens to my old monitor.
2: And it is pretty cool, I promise you. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Kat. Thank you to Ben and Dave there. We'll be rejoining them later to find out exactly what happens. So if you want to do it, get your old television... And uh, get a magnet, turn the TV on, and then have a little bit of a fun with the magnet near the screen.
3: Uh, we've got an email in here from Dave Levick uh, from Australia and he says hi Chris and team myself and my partner are currently on a year long cycling tour around South America and we download your podcast regularly and listen to it in our tents yes I have to apologise
2: to him for that because he sent me that earlier this year and I lost it down the back of my cupboard and I had intended to read it out so I'm very sorry about that but I hope you're enjoying your cycling tour and uh, you've made it back to Australia or or not so far Um,
3: also we've had a question just in from Mark in Bletchley and he wants to know do astronauts change their diet before they head off into space. Chris, what do you reckon?
2: Well, we covered this on The Naked Scientists a couple of two or three months ago uh, in a limited sense. And in the early days, people did worry about astronauts' diets and going into space for various reasons. One is that if you have gut uh, flora, bacteria in your guts that make a lot of gas, and then you eat foods that they like breaking down and turning into gas, then there's a worry that you could end up making a lot of gas and that could be quite unpleasant inside your space suit. That was the theory. So diets were carefully selected to be what we call low residue and also to be fairly stomach kind. So no beans. Um, yeah. So they tended to avoid those kind of fibre-rich foods. But in fact, experience has shown after many, many space missions that that's probably not necessary. So they just go for whatever you can desiccate down to dried-out astronaut food. There's, there's not really any benefit to doing that, as, as they've subsequently found out. Lovely. Interesting one here from Neil Gibson for you, Cat says, um, Hi, guys. Great podcast. But I've been watching Michael Palin uh, making his way around Europe on the BBC, including Estonians firewalking. What's the science behind firewalking? Why don't they burn their feet, or is it trick or something?
3: Well, there's no trick to it necessarily. Um, what it is is that it doesn't look ent- it's not entirely what it looks like. Um, basically, there's three. It's it pretty hot to me, Kat. It does look hot, but there's three components to this. The first thing is is that when you're walking across fire understandably you do it a bit quickly so you're actually minimising the time that any particular um, part of your body is in contact with the fire this is the same reason that lizards scoot about in the desert on hot rocks the quicker they move the less they're actually going to to burn themselves and there's two other things um the fires are lit and then they're let to burn and sort of basically become barbecue um but the top layer of that is ash ash is actually a pretty good insulator against the direct heat underneath so you can feel the heat above it but actually the the burning heat won't get through so much and also carbon is the component of the coals and carbon is actually a very poor conductor of heat so heat that's burning right at the bottom of the fire pit won't come up so much so it's not as hot as it looks and also you go across it very fast
2: One theory I heard was that because you're a bit nervous in the same way you get sweaty hands when you're nervous your feet sweat a bit and you effectively surf across the coals on a cushion of steam which also helps to, to keep the temperature down. Do you believe that?
3: Yeah, I think that sounds plausible. Maybe we should get Dave to do It's kitchen science. Yeah. <laughs> we have another question for Chris. Um, and this is from David, uh, David Stock. And it's Chris, when a person has spinal damage that leads to paralysis and the loss of feeling, um, is, is the loss of feeling that they get the reason for the paralysis, i.e., the brain can't feel your limb so you can't move it? Or is it the other way around?
2: it it can be both because the spinal cord isn't just a one way street it's got information coming out of the brain down to what we call motor neurons they're the motor nerves that supply your muscles and at the same time there's information coming in from the body going up the spinal cord to your brain telling your your brain where your body is in space how fast different muscle groups are moving and where they are and whether the movement you've just made has been completed so if you damage the spinal cord you can damage just the sensory fibres and that means you can't feel your body but you could potentially still move you can damage just the motor fibre which means although you can feel your body you can't make any movements but more usually because it's impossible to be that discreet and the spinal cord so specialised when you make a, a lesion in the spinal cord such as people who dive into swimming pools where it's too shallow and they impact on their neck they break their neck and this severs the spinal cord and it disjoins all of the fibres coming up from the body telling the brain what your body's doing what it feels like as well as the fibres coming down out of the brain that tell your muscles to move so you neither can feel your body nor actually make it move so very unpleasant
3: doesn't sound nice at all. Anyway, you're the naked, uh, listening to the Naked Scientists, and uh, we're going to take your calls on particle physics and anything to do with the universe and the structure of matter because we have two absolutely fantastic guests coming into the studio. We have Ben Alanak and Christina Lazzaroni. So email Chris at the The
2: Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by the Naked is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat and we are going to be probing the origins of the universe and the structure of matter what's inside atoms, that kind of thing, coming up in a moment on the programme. But first, earlier this week, Her Majesty the Queen and His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh officially opened the Diamond Synchrotron, and that's in Oxfordshire. Now, this very expensive device creates high-energy electromagnetic radiation. That's known as synchrotronic light, and it's filtered to give you an extremely intense X-ray beam, which is hundreds of times more powerful than the one that you'd get in hospital. Thank God. Um, Now, we sent Mira down to the site this week to find out how it works, and also the benefits of using such high-energy light.
7: Hello, this week I'm at Diamond Light Source out in Didcot, Oxfordshire, to find out about the giant particle accelerator located here, known as a synchrotron. Now, the building itself is a huge silver donut-shaped building, and to give you an idea of just how big it is, it apparently covers the area of five football pitches. But what I'm here to find out, really, is what is a synchrotron, what does it actually do, and how does it work? I'm also going to be finding out just how this technology is being used to benefit everyday life and even to uncover the unknown messages contained in ancient parchments such as the Dead Sea Scrolls. To answer the first few of my questions is Richard Walker, who's the technical director here at Diamond Light Source, and we're actually inside the synchrotron now. So what exactly is a synchrotron?
8: Well, a synchrotron, as you rightly said, is a particle accelerator. In the case of Diamond, we accelerate electrons. We accelerate these in a large circular machine, about half a kilometre in circumference, where they reach a very high energy. The energy is three thousand million volts. And at that energy they give off very large quantities of electromagnetic radiation when they're bent to maintain their circular orbit. And it is this electromagnetic energy, this electromagnetic waves which is called synchrotron light, that we use in the experiments.
7: So we're actually inside the synchrotron itself now, so where are we standing?
8: Well, we're actually stood in the linear accelerator, which is the first part of the the acceleration system. Right at the beginning, where the electrons, if you like, come to life, they're liberated from the, the atoms in an electron gun. This electron gun fires the electrons into the linear accelerator, where they're accelerated up to 100 million volts. And then from there, they're transferred into another synchrotron, the booster synchrotron, where they're accelerated up to the final energy of 3,000 million volts before they're injected into the storage ring.
7: So they're bent round, and this is done so using magnets?
8: We use a large array of electromagnets, both to to bend the electrons to form the, the circular orbit, but also to focus them and keep them very tightly compressed, because it's the small size of the electron beam which gives rise to very bright synchrotron light that we want to generate and use in our experiments.
7: So now I know how the synchrotron actually runs, but what benefit does this high beam of light actually provide? I'm with Sanjeet Desi, who's a principal beamline scientist here at Diamond. What exactly is a beamline?
9: A beamline is a series of X-ray optics that helps channel the light that's produced in the machine all the way down to the sample, where we have an electron microscope that we use to study anything from magnetism to chemical reactions on a surface.
7: So we're outside your nanoscience beamline now, so what is this that we have in front of us? How is this light being channelled?
9: If you take uh, light into a camera, you use a series of lenses to focus the light onto your film. If you try to do that with x-rays, the x-rays just go straight through the lens. So instead of using lenses, you have to use mirrors. So. The beamline is actually a series of half a dozen mirrors that take the light and channel the light and focus the light down to our sample where the light is only uh, a tenth of the width of your hair but it has about a thousand billion times the intensity of a hospital X-ray source.
7: How many beamlines are there actually here at Diamond?
9: Well, in phase one of Diamond there were seven beamlines that were constructed. You can do anything on a, on a beamline from looking at the structure of a protein to understand how a virus attacks your body, to looking at structures under extremely high pressure and extremely high temperatures, and that's, for instance, important for understanding how iron behaves at the Earth's core. So there's a whole host of ways that X-rays interact with matter to work out exactly what's happening in materials at the fundamental level of the atomic scale.
7: So extremely variable fields of science are being explored using this synchrotron light. But it's not only science that's benefiting. Scientists are also trying to understand more about history. Professor Tim West and his team at Cardiff University have been using synchrotron light to research the structure and text of ancient parchments, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, potentially enabling them to read the scrolls without even having to unravel them. I've got Tim here with me now. Hello, Tim. Hello, Mira. What made you start working with ancient parchment?
0: Well, what a lot of people don't know is that parchment's actually made out of skin, dried skin, and therefore that's made out of collagen. And I've been working using synchrotron radiation to understand the structure of collagen for about the last 20 years. What we've been trying to do is to see how intact the collagen is in a piece of parchment, because what happens to collagen is as it gets older and the control mechanisms for repair are lost when we're looking at something which is no longer in an animal, we begin to see that the collagen deteriorates into gelatin. Collagen is really like a, a little rope-like molecule, which really gives us strength in all of our tissues, our tendon, our bones, and our skin. And when it deteriorates into gelatin, usually in our body, it's taken away and recycled. But in a document, like a a historical parchment document the gelatin just sits there it's lost its strength it likes to take up water in the way that gelatin actually is a jelly and therefore the parchment becomes very very fragile brittle and very very difficult to unfold and read and handle.
7: So how are you using synchrotron light to overcome this problem?
0: Well first of all we can begin to detect without hopefully damaging a piece of parchment how intact it is. Using the synchrotron, we have a very fine beam of x-rays we put through the parchment sample. The way that the x-rays interact with the matter tell us about the state of the matter that's present. We get a very distinct signal of the way the x-rays are scattered for collagen and a different one for gelatin. And we can begin to tell the difference between those two and then advise on what the, what we call the collagen to gelatin ratio is in any of these samples. We have looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls here, using the scattering to try to understand about the damage that's occurred to the Dead Sea Scrolls, because what we're finding is that the caves that the different samples were coming from seems to have affected how stable they are and how they've managed to stay intact. When we find that a sample is possibly so damaged that we really think that it shouldn't be displayed or unfurled There's a second approach with the synchrotron that we can begin to use, which really relates to a process called tomography. If we pass an X-ray beam through an object, then the picture that we get depends on presence of things like writing on the surface of the parchment. So from that, we can take lots and lots of pictures at different angles of a piece of parchment, whether it's a rolled-up piece of parchment as a scroll, and we can then reconstruct on a computer from all the different absorption patterns that we have, what the original object was. And that's where we've begun to realise that using the ink on parchment and the surface of a parchment, we can read objects which we really would not be able to unroll.
7: So there you have it, irony at its best. This giant silver doughnut is enabling scientists to probe matter down to tiny atomic scales and this extremely new technology is going to provide the answers to questions and beliefs that go back thousands of years.
3: Mmm, doughnuts. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who do want to know the actual contents of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I uh, I guess the next issue will be getting hold of them all. Uh, That was Mira Senthilingam reporting from Diamond Light Source, that's the new synchrotron in South Oxfordshire, which was officially opened on Friday
2: and uh, this is of course The Naked Scientist are Dr Chris and Dr Kat and we're looking at the origins of the universe what's inside matter, what are atoms made of this week we've got two wonderful guests with us Uh, one of them is Ben Alanak he is a theoretical physicist from the University of Cambridge and we've also got Christina Lazzaroni she's in Birmingham University but let's kick off first of all by talking to Ben so when we're talking about atoms I think the ancient Greeks, going back to Democritus time had a a concept of the atom as this tiny particle which you you link lots of them together and got something but how do we actually know what's inside them?
10: A hundred years ago, um, Ernest Rutherford, down in the Cavendish lab here in, in Cambridge, he fired um, radioactive particles into atoms. And you can tell from that, you know, roughly speaking, what's going on inside. One in about every 8,000 got uh, of these particles came back at him and he measured those with a Geiger counter. And that uh, led him to completely throw away the model at the time, which was a plum pudding model of, you know, some sort of squishy stuff, which was positive with little electrons dotted around it. What he realised was, actually, most of the atoms uh, is empty space, with um, light electrons flying around the outside, and inside there's a very small, hard, dense core called a nucleus.
2: It's interesting you say about the empty space, Ben. I've I've got an email here from Jack Dowd. Um, who says, hi guys, I'm listening to you in Brooklyn, New York, and I I like your programme. I've heard there's a huge, vast amount of empty space between the orbiting electrons and the nucleus of an atom, and I've been told that if all the empty space was taken away so that every single electron touched another electron and the nucleus, then the size of the world would theoretically be the size of a melon. Um,
10: That could actually be uh, true. I'd have to do a a calculation on the back of an envelope to be absolutely sure, but uh, it is a huge amount of space. And the particles inside are tiny.
2: But what are the actual particles that make up an atom?
10: Yeah, so um, around the outside you have electrons. They're light, negatively charged, electrically charged um, particles. And inside you have the nucleus, which is made up of protons and, and neutrons. They're kind of heavier um, stuff that stick together quite well.
2: And, and how big actually are these things?
10: So an atom is roughly 10 to the minus 10 metres. So that's a tenth of a billionth of a, a metre, across and the tiny constituents in the middle are kind of um, almost a million times smaller than that so they're just unimaginably tiny really
2: and the nucleus is positively charged because it's got the protons right. in it and the electrons are negatively charged That's now i can right. understand why the electrons would be clung onto by the positive core of each atom the, the nucleus but why is it that all those protons with that big positive charge can, can be stuffed together and they stay there they don't all fly apart
10: Uh, There is an additional force keeping them together. That's called the strong nuclear force, which is, um, I mean, they're in there. They're stuck in there with neutrons as well. And this thing kind of just sticks them together, basically.
2: And, and so how do we actually work out what the different atoms are? Because if I've got an atom of, say, oxygen, which I'm breathing, how is that different from an atom of, say, the carbon that I'm burning to make the energy in my body?
10: Yeah, well, you can, you can weigh that. I mean, through indirect means, you can weigh them. And um, you, you can work it out through chemical reactions and so on, um, you know, to work out how many of the different atoms make, up, you know, uh, make different substances up.
3: And delving a bit more deeper into the structure of matter I mean you hear about things like quarks and neutrinos and all these kind of things How do they fit in and how do we know that they're there?
10: Well as far as we know they're the smallest bits uh, of matter So if we go deeper into the nucleus for instance every proton and neutron is made up of Three smaller particles, and they're uh, they're quarks actually, and they're stuck together with this strong uh, nuclear force. So by breaking up protons, you can actually detect these things indirectly.
3: This is where like particle accelerators come in.
10: That's right. Yeah. So Rutherford's initial experiments with the radioactive atom are now being doing at much being done at much higher energies um, in order to delve deeper and deeper. Into the proton, for instance.
3: So, tell us a bit more about what you're doing. I, I sort of understand it as you do the maths that then the particle accelerator people try and work out if it's right or not.
10: Um, yeah, that's that's uh, it's a bit it gets a bit blurred around the edges, and uh, we both do bits of each other's jobs. But that's right. I, I do a lot of theory. Uh, there's a lot of sums. Uh, I try and work out models of the early universe to explain facts about the universe that, that we see today and then most importantly to um, work out ways of testing these, these theories by looking at the data coming out of the
2: experiments.
3: So this is working out what you should see if you smash two particles together?
2: If the theory is right, yeah. But why do you want to smash things together? How, how does that actually help? Um, well,
10: it's the only way, because we, you can't actually see with a naked eye or even with a microscope, you can't see these particles, they're much too small. So the only way to probe them at all is to have something very high energy that, that breaks them apart. And uh, you can see what they decay into, for instance. You can you can get a picture of what happens after those collisions. And that's the only way, really, you have for probing them.
2: And what's new about the Large Hadron Collider? Oh, it's, it's... what have we done in the past and how does this differ?
10: Yeah, so um, plenty of uh, different collisions have been happening in the past, and basically the energy gets higher and higher and higher every time. And um, with you know through Einstein's equation e equals mc squared, if you've got more energy, you can make heavier particles. So particles that are previously undiscovered, when you pass an, a certain energy threshold, all of a sudden you'll be able to produce them, and that's what's hoped, particularly for the Higgs boson, which is a hypothetical particle that's uh, you know hopes will show up there.
2: So up until now, people have been slamming things together the same way as they will do in the LHC, but now they're going to be able to do it even more powerfully.
10: Yeah, basically that's right. I mean, the the technology's come on a a lot and, uh, you know, that's why they're able now to do such um, high-energy collisions. But, but yeah, that's right.
3: Where's this going to stop? I mean, if we've got this new, exciting, huge particle um, accelerator, what if you do some sums or find some evidence that means you have to build an even bigger one to get even higher energies? Do you think that the LHC will be the answer to everything?
10: Um, Not necessarily. Um, You might need to build... um, uh, one more actually
3: <laughs>
10: An and even bigger one yeah well it, w- it w- won't necessarily be bigger but uh, it would belgium. be straight size of
2: belgium don't these things consume energy on the scale of a national grid just for this one experiment it's
10: not not as not as much as that actually but um it is a lot of power i mean it's uh you know 100 megawatts or so so uh you know it's a significant well, that's about 20 percent
2: of, of, a, of a reasonable nuclear power yeah. station
10: so that's quite a lot isn't it yeah it's a lot of power you know and uh so you know you have to weigh up the, co- the cost of these things and decide whether the science you're going to get out of them is actually worth the cost and it was decided and i think rightly that for the lhc the answer to that question is yes and uh you know it'll be that that decides whether the next one's
2: built Thanks, Ben. That's Ben Alanak. In just a second, we're going to talk to Christina Lazzaroni, and she's going to tell us how we're detecting some of those particles that are produced during these big collisions. And if you have any questions for them, email them, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked
1: Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientist.com.
2: This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and with Dr Kat. And we're talking particle physicists of particle physics rather than particle physicists. Christina Lazzaroni is from Birmingham University. Hello, Christina. Hello. Now, we've heard from Ben about some of these collisions and the huge energies that are going to be produced. And presumably, from those collisions, there are particles produced or evidence that particles get produced so we can try and understand what's inside atoms. So what are you actually looking for in your experiments?
11: So that's right. uh, We we try to to collide together. In this precise case for the Large Hadron Collider is two protons together um, accelerated at about the speed of light and the fact that they have this huge energy will make possible to produce heavy particles and particles that were never seen otherwise at the very beginning the origin of the universe. So that's what we've tried to find. Essentially, we're trying to find new particles that we were not able to see before because we didn't have enough energy.
2: So what you're trying to do is to simulate, in a laboratory environment, the Big Bang. So how kind of. this energy got turned from a pinpoint source of energy into the stuff, the matter, that is the stuff we see around us today.
11: Yes, that's that's quite the idea, yes.
2: I guess the question is, though, is that safe? Um, you know, are we are we going to spawn a new a new universe in CERN, Geneva where actually, I mean, people do say it's the centre of the universe in some respects, but is that a good idea?
11: (laughs) Yes, it is actually a very good idea. Um, And no, we are not to destroy an entire universe. Um, But uh, previously, uh for example, at CERN, we've been smashing particles together for years. In fact, CERN has been celebrating its 50 years quite recently. And nothing of such catastrophe ever happened. And there is good reasons for that. So uh, the idea that we got higher and higher energies because we want somehow to go more and more back in time. So we want to see the particles that were produced more back and back in time. But that doesn't mean that it's dangerous, because these particle lives show shortly and they're not danger in itself that there would be no harm for anybody.
2: How can you ever know that you really have faithfully recreated what was going on at the Big Bang?
11: Now that... You- Probably. OK, let's let's be honest, we would we not recreate the exact condition of the Big Bang. But what we want to do is try to go uh, at the very similar condition as much as we can. That doesn't matter, the perfect condition to try to understand how these particles were formed and the new particles that may come over and try to build a more complete pictures from that.
2: So theorising for a minute and sort of straying into Ben's territory, so what do you think actually happened then? When the universe was first born there was a lot of energy around, so could you just talk us through what you think, on paper at least, probably happened?
11: Right. So, uh, yes, all, uh, at the very beginning, uh, we think that there was a new state of matter, which uh, called um, quark, gluon, plasma, which, in fact, is one of the main topic of one of the experiments at LAC. So, uh, you know that in quarks, uh, quarks are confined in protons and neutrons. So, in fact, we never see quarks free so far. We see protons and neutrons, but not the quarks. But we believe that at the very beginning, um, there was such hot... Hot and dense state of matter that the quarks uh, the were actually free and so it's all together some sort of big hot and dense soup of quark and gluons so then from there the, uh, the things started to uh, freeze out And there are models uh, that has to be somehow this this kind of sort of studies that we do with gases and with liquid, you know, sort of thing. And so it frees out and at some point... uh, somehow matters or atoms as we, we now believe they're formed and also light is is released and go out forever and that is what we, we observe then from atoms we've got bigger objects and so on.
2: So when you design an experiment for the LHC as it will be next year when it switches on we hope in CERN <laughs> we hope, yes. um, what's going to be happening is a stream of protons is going to be whipping round this Circle at a 27 kilometres long at nearly the speed of light, yep. tremendously high energy, and that beam will then be brought into collision course with a second beam going the other way. Yes. The two will right. then cannon into each other at a point that presumably you know where that collision will happen. So what are you looking for?
11: So um, at that point, in fact, there's going to be four places of collisions along along the ring. And at that point, we, we place in these collisions point somehow of huge cameras that take uh, almost sort of photographic pictures of what's going on. So then from these pictures, you try to use... Some sort of forensic science to go back and see from the traces that they left in the detector what was actually happened in the first collision.
2: That doesn't sound too complicated. Um, the price tag has been huge. Um, how long are you going to have to do this for to, to see the kind of evidence that you need to say now we know what's going on?
11: Well, it actually depends, in particular, what uh, people are looking for. For if you if you look for very rare processes, for things that. You know they're very, very rare. You have to look for long, of course. There might be other things that you spot immediately. We hope to see the Higgs boson quite fast, but you you never know until you see it.
2: And just to finish off, Christina, Ben mentioned it, you've now mentioned it, what actually is the Higgs boson?
11: Right. So the, the Higgs boson is uh, supposed to be the thing that gives uh, everybody mass. So it's somehow, um, well, we could imagine like a sort of gelatin that fill up the space. And the, the bigger you are, uh, the bigger resistance this gelatin offers to you. So somehow the Higgs mass is this sort of gelatin that fill up the entire space. Yeah? And somehow we give you mass because it gives you a measure of the resistance that you have going through it. So this is what
2: Ben tells us should exist, but you're now setting out to try and find whether it does or not.
11: Yes, if it doesn't exist, in fact, the old theory needs to be uh, revised quite fundamentally. Yes.
2: Thank you very much. That's Christina Lazzaroni. She's from the University of Birmingham. Thank you very much, Christina.
11: I'm
3: absolutely fascinated by the Higgs boson. I've heard it called the god particle, you know, the absolute fundamental. Anyway, we can come back to discussion about all those kind of bosons and muons and things later. Uh, But now it's time to go to Diana O'Carroll, who has a rather sticky question. Hello
12: and welcome to Question of the Week on The Naked Scientists. Now, this is one of my favourite questions of the week because of all the practical research I had to do for it.
0: Hi there, my name's Ian Guest, I'm from Sheffield. Uh, Despite being a former physics teacher, I got stuck on a problem, which was, why is it that chocolate chips in cookies melt if you touch them, but they survive the baking process?
12: But we had another listener write in with a chocolate cooking problem.
0: Hello, this is Simon Griffiths from Brisbane, Australia. I have an interesting question for the naked scientists. Why don't Cadbury's flakes melt? I've tried microwaving and double-boiling with no luck, and I thought it would be a tasty experiment for the naked scientists.
12: So we have several issues here. One of them is that cooking chocolate has different melting properties to ordinary chocolate.
0: Hi, my name's Stephen Houston. I'm a
13: food scientist in the school of life science at the heriot Watt University. And I have to talk about the reasons why chocolate melts at different temperatures. When you make chocolate, you roast the cocoa beans and extract something called chocolate liquor. To make eating chocolate from that, you normally add extra fat, cocoa butter, and that reduces the melting point of the chocolate so it becomes closer to body temperature so it melts in your mouth when you eat it. With baking chocolate, you you don't add extra fat, and that gives it a higher melting point.
12: Then there's the special case of the flake.
13: Uh, My name's Paul Bidder. I'm an independent food technologist, and I've spent some time working in the confectionery industry. I think that the explanation for this is that the distribution of fat within the flake type of chocolate is different from normal chocolate. Basically, chocolate is a a mixture of very finely ground particles of sugar, cocoa, and milk solids, and that's surrounded by the cocoa butter or cocoa fat. Now, when the cocoa butter melts, if the fat is very well distributed, it allows the fat to lubricate the individual particles and so they can slide over each other quite easily. And that will give you a nice runny chocolate. If on the other hand fat within the chocolate isn't as well distributed the particles of chocolate won't slide over each other and not then give you a nice runny chocolate. It just happens that in the case of flake the manufacturing process is slightly different and the fat is not as well distributed as it would be in the case of ordinary chocolate.
12: But how do chocolate chips stay chippy in biscuits and cakes?
13: This is slightly different, I think, from the situation with a flake, in that when chocolate does melt, it doesn't melt in exactly the same way as, say, an ice cube would do if you heat it up. But if you melt chocolate without applying any force to it, it actually tends to retain its shape, and that's because of the structure of all the particles that are there within the matrix of the fat. The biscuit around it provides enough support for the chocolate chip to remain chip shape throughout the baking process
12: and why might cooking permanently change chocolate after it has reset?
13: It may be that during the baking process the fat distributes itself around within the chocolate chip a little bit more effectively and so perhaps can melt a little bit easier. A more likely explanation the fat within the chocolate chip becomes mixed with some of the fat from the biscuit and when you get two different types of fats mixing together The actual physical effect is that it reduces the melting point of fat mixture, and that may account for why the chocolate, after it's been baked, appears to melt easier than the uncooked chocolate chip.
12: So to sum up, don't cook with flakes and watch out for those cocoa fat matrices, because the wrong sort can make you very sticky. Well, next week we'll be exploring all those hidden hairy bits.
2: Hi, my name is John, and I live in Hong Kong. My question is about pubic hair. Some people have said it is to protect your bit, or to keep your bits warm, or to make you smell more attractive to the opposite sex. I want to know why do humans have it, and what its function is.
12: And after that, I'll be finding out where energy gets its, uh, energy from.
1: Hello, my name's Paul Taverndale from Woking. Uh, my question concerns the speed of light. Um, if the speed of light is slower in glass than in air, where does the energy come from to speed it up as it exits the glass into air? And why does this not violate the law of conservation of energy?
12: If you know the purpose of seemingly superfluous hair or a little particle physics, do send your answers and questions to me at the week at thenakedscientist.com or put your thoughts on our forum. That's all for a very well-fed question of the week. Back to you
3: guys. Oh, thanks, Diana. And I personally think that some experimental evidence is definitely required, so uh, I'll be hitting the chocolate chips, I reckon. The, the talk of pubic hair is somewhat putting me off. If you know why we have pubic and underarm hair, or how light can speed up as it leaves material without getting extra energy from somewhere else, do email us. It's Question of the Week, or one word, at thenakedscientists.com.
1: Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed? <laughs> On your way to work or even at work. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com
2: forward slash podcast. Now this is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and with Dr Kat, and we were inviting you earlier to take your old-fashioned TV screen, which is the long, deep ones with a cathode ray tube inside, and turn them upside down, see what happens, and also wave a magnet near the screen. Now Mark is in Bletchley. he's had a go. Hi, Mark. Hello, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What did you find?
0: Right, well, I, I've got a television with the uh, green gone on it until I start to turn it on its side, and I'm doing it as I'm speaking now, and I seem to get the normal colours uh, come back. Maybe and you've been watching actually...
2: your telly upside down for years, Mark.
0: <laughs> when I actually turn the television set upside down, all I've got is green. Everything is green. What uh, about the
2: magnet? Have you tried the magnet?
0: With the magnet, I'll try one of my... Uh, I've got on so a radio, so I've got uh, odd speakers here. It actually it draws the green at one side of the set, and as I move the speaker up the other side, it draws the red gun. This is because
2: there's a big magnet in your speaker. That's why you're using a speaker, yeah?
0: That's right.
2: Yeah. So basically what you're seeing is very funny, colourful effects when you either turn it upside down or when you bring a magnet very close to the screen.
0: Actually, it looks quite good on its side. I might leave it on its side, Chris.
2: (laughs) Mark, we like that. Stay with us. Let's see if you're right. Let's go back to Ben and Dave and find out what happened. Welcome
4: back to Kitchen Science. I'm still with the 23rd Cambridge Brownies here, and we are going to find out what happens when you turn an old CRT-style monitor upside down. So again, girls, you said earlier you think the screen's going to go fuzzy, is that right?
5: Yes, I think it might let out all the particles of the um, TV...
4: Okay, All right then, Dave. Well, obviously we need somebody who's big and strong to turn this upside down and we can't ask the brownies to do it for us. (laughs) So while Dave turns the screen upside down, I want you girls to tell me if you see anything strange happening.
5: The colour's fading and it's going all blurry. Yeah. The print is getting smaller.
4: And I can see that it's actually gone a little bit green. You're, You're quite right, it has gone a bit blurry, hasn't it? Can you read it now?
5: Not really, because it's upside down. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, even if you do turn your head upside down, can you read it?
5: No, it's, um, the print's gone all
9: small.
4: So Dave, you've shown us that turning a CRT-style TV upside down makes the colours go funny, and it has really lost its focus and gone slightly green. It looks a bit sickly. Is this permanent? It should be fine. Um, there's two things you could do to solve
6: this. One is to turn it the right way up. The other one is to turn it off and on again. Now, Dave, you said that we're going to try something with a magnet on the screen. Is that the next thing to do? Yeah, that's the plan. This is one which might do some damage to the television, so only do this on an old TV. So, Poppy, here's a very strong magnet. What I want you to do is put it near the screen and see what happens.
5: The colour seems to fade, and it seems to make sort of a little sort of flowery sort of colour with all these, like, a nice little pattern. It looks like a rainbow, and it's going all wonky. It looks like one of those kaleidoscopes when you turn it.
4: That really is actually quite beautiful, although I don't think I'd like it Then I was trying to work. It seems to have twisted the image on the screen a little bit as well. Dave, what is actually happening here?
6: Well, to understand this, you've got to understand how a TV works. Now, at the back of the TV, there's a series of things called electron guns. These fire electrons towards the front screen of your TV. These beams of electrons then scan across the TV in a series of lines building up a picture. But I've never seen my TV appearing like from the top corner and scanning across in lines. On a TV in this country, it will happen about 60 times a second, so your eyes aren't quick enough to notice it. Now, when one of these beams hits the front of the TV, it hits blobs of things called phosphors. When they get hit by the electrons, they get given lots of energy, and they give off light. The different kinds of phosphors are different colours, one for red, one for green, and one
4: for blue. Oh, right, and so because they're tiny, again, a bit like it scans so quickly, I see one picture, they're so tiny that instead of seeing lots of blobs, I see the one colour. Yeah, that's right. So why does pointing a magnet at the screen make the colours go all funny?
6: Well, in the same way that if you put a current through a wire when it's in a magnetic field, it will move like an electric motor. If you put a magnetic field near some moving electrons, which is an electric current, it will get bent. And that's actually how the scanning is done in the first place, with a
4: series of electromagnets at the back of the TV. So the electromagnets at the back of the screen bend this beam of electrons to make sure that they hit exactly the right place on the front of the
6: screen... Yes, and if you add another mag- magnetic field from your magnet, you can then bend them into the wrong place. So quite often the, the electrons will hit the wrong phosphor and it'll go the wrong colour. So our magnet just
4: stops them from hitting their target. Yes. But what's that got to do with turning the TV upside down? How come that made such a difference?
6: Because the Earth has a magnetic field, which is why compasses work. The TV is sitting in magnetic field to start with, so if you turn it upside down, that magnetic field is pointing a different direction,
4: so it deflects them a little tiny bit and the colours go wrong. So when we first turn on our TV, it sets it up for the Earth's magnetic field and takes that into account when it aims the electrons. But why did it seem to fix itself when I turned my TV back on? Inside the TV, there's things
6: called degassing coils. When it turns on, the TV puts a very strong current backwards and forwards through these coils. This removes any magnetisation in the TV and sets it up perfectly for the way
4: the magnetic field is at the moment. Seeing as you lot were playing with magnets on my screen, does it look like it used to look now?
5: No, it it looks sort of more wavy.
4: Are there any patches where the colour has changed?
5: Um, In the corners, mostly, there's kind of colours like where there shouldn't be.
4: Do you think we'll be able to fix this by turning it off and on again? It's worth a try. (laughs) Okay, then, well, would somebody like to switch it off? And LRS, do you want to turn it back on again?
5: It's worked because the colours come back. Yes, they have mostly, but there's one bit of highlighted sort of...
4: right okay i see so is it possible that we have done permanent damage to my monitor dave it's conceivable but with any luck turning it on and off a couple more times we'll fix it for you Ben. so this would be why people shouldn't try it at home with the tv that they care about yes so how do you feel about the fact that today you've been doing a similar experiment to some of the top scientists in the world
5: i feel like i'm a scientist (laughs)
4: Fantastic. And with kitchen science, of course, anyone can be a scientist in their own home. So that's all we have for this week. We'll be back with more experiments next week.
5: Goodbye.
2: Thank you very much, guys. Absolutely fantastic. You can find out more fabulous experiments and explanations for why they work on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. And well done, uh, Mark in Bletchley. Well done. That's okay. You were absolutely right. Great. in In your observations. Thank you very much for taking part. Okay, Chris. All the best. Thank you. It was great to have you on the show.
8: Cheers.
3: And now it's time to wrap up with some particle physics questions. We have a question from David in Portland, Oregon. And uh, he wants to ask Christina he's heard that scientists could potentially make black holes in the lab. Could we do this? And would it like destroy the universe?
11: Yes, we actually we would like to make black holes. At the Large Hadron Collider it would be very interesting because there are few things we, lots of things we don't know about them and we could study them. And no, they would not destroy the entire universe because they would be very, very localised and they live for such a short time that it would not destroy absolutely anything. They're entirely safe.
2: Why wouldn't they grow and get huge?
11: Because they will decay and die instantaneously like anything else. So They will not collapse and get in all the stuff.
2: I'm glad you're so sure how big is your insurance policy. Um, now, we have a quick, very quick question for you, Ben. Um, Charles in Buckton says high unclothed ones. Could there exist white holes as a counterpart to black holes?
10: Uh, there are a theoretical possibility, as you, you can find out from solving Einstein's equations. But if you actually look into them, uh, you can't really see how they would form. They're, they seem to be uh, unstable. They're like black holes, but stuff comes out of them rather than the other way around. Which so is they're the sort haunted. of reverse. Yeah, so would the stuff
2: that ca- came out be antimatter? Because in our universe, all the stuff we can see is matter.
10: It would be. It would be any matter uh, and antimatter. I mean, uh, and light would come out. But I mean, uh, they're unstable, so I don't think they can. Uh, form.
2: Well, there you have it. Let's let's hope he's absolutely right. Well, that's kind of it for us for this week. So thank you very much for lending us your ears and lending us your time. It's been great to to have you here and joining in on the programme. I'd like to say a very big thank you to Ben Alanak from Cambridge University and Christina Lazzaroni, she is from Birmingham University, and also our production team at The Naked Scientist, Petra Minch, Ben Balster, Miracintha and Diana O'Carroll. Next week we're back looking at stem cells and cloning, so we'll actually be visiting the lab where people are doing cloning experiments to find out how it works and finding out all about the technology that is chimeric animals. What's that all about? See you next week.
1: The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.